Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bad on Paper podcast. I'm Olivia Mentor. And I'm Becca Freeman. And today we are talking all about imposter syndrome. This is probably one of the best, most impactful interviews I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm excited about it. Same. I'm very excited. I feel like this is a topic we get so many questions on. And I'm really excited to have an expert to talk through this. There is so much of her advice that was so smart, but ran counter to my own natural kind of like gut instincts, I guess. And so I'm I'm really excited to share this. Same. It's I think people are going to get a lot out of it. But first, should we tackle some highs and lows? Obviously. <laughs> Tell me about your high. Okay. I have a real high and a micro high. So my real high is that one of my best friends, Molly from college, visited last weekend. We had such a fun weekend. We went to go see Moulin Rouge on Broadway, which was very fun. We got a reservation at Lilia, which is, I think, pretty much the best restaurant in Williamsburg. Went to Lola Taverna, which is one of my favorite restaurants. Like we just, it was hit after hit over the weekend. Like we just did so many fun things. And it was good to spend time with her as well. Sounds so fun. It was so fun. And then my micro high is on uh, Monday, I painted my toenails bright red orange. The color is lava from Olive and June, which is usually so not me. And it has me feeling very powerful. I feel like that is the first sign that summer has has hit when you get that orangey red color. That's such a good choice. That's not usually me. I'm usually like a neutral or pastel person. And so this feels very outside of my my spicy. color wheel. And yeah, I do feel spicy. Every time I look down, I'm like, oh, look at me. <laughs> I love it. I also painted my nails with Olive in June and a nice little purple shade. And it just gave me a burst as well. So I totally get it. What about you? What's your high? My high is not very exciting. I've had more of a week of lows, which we'll get to in a bit. But my high was that I kicked off no spend June, which is more like only spending money on the essentials June. I did this last year as part of a story that I was writing for apartment therapy. And it completely changed how I thought about how I spend, how I save, how I shop, the things that I find myself reaching for when I'm feeling anxious in terms of like, oh, I'm just going to go on Amazon and buy something that'll give me that quick little boost of energy. So I'm excited to kick it off. It was kind of bad timing because as, as again, we'll get to in the lows, Jake and I both had COVID last week, but I'm excited to see, I don't know, what I learned from this year's experiment. It's so interesting to me that this is a high for you because this <laughs> there feels... were very few highs to choose from. Back oh, okay. Because <laughs> this feels really freaking hard to me. <laughs> it 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 is hard, but there's something that feels really I don't know introspective you also, about you it. You love a personal challenge. <laughs> I do. I spend so much time in therapy talking about this, but I can really view anything as a challenge, and this is quite literally a challenge, but. Yeah. So we're doing no restaurants, no iced coffee, uh, no going to pick up takeout. What does this mean for the fact that you were supposed to come to New York next week? So I do have a couple exceptions. If I have previously booked appointments, whether they're social or work-related, or like I have a hair appointment that I've had booked for months and months, then I don't cancel them. I think that's kind of silly. So yeah, I I will still go. Okay. And spend as needed. But for example, when I go to the train station, I might not get that iced coffee from Dunkin'. I might pack my own, that kind of thing. Okay. What (laughs) restraint? I feel like money and calories don't count in airports, train stations, whatever. I, I, I love nothing more than like a going on a travel journey, iced coffee and breakfast sandwich. But alas, you know, gotta, gotta tighten the purse strings. All right. Let's get into Lowe's. Tell me Tell me your low. Oh, gosh. So my low was directly following our Iceland trip. Everything was fine. We got home. And I swear to you, it was like we got in the door and Jake was like, I'm going to take a test, which we had just taken tests in Iceland to fly back. So he was quickly positive. And then I followed a few days later. And I guess I was just... I mean, of course, I know how serious COVID is. We take it seriously. We are both vaccinated and boosted and all of that. 
But I just had heard so many people say, oh, I thought it was allergies, or I just had a little tickle in my throat, and that was it. And for us, it was like absolutely the most sick either of us has ever been in our lives. Oh, my God. Chills, fever. I had a 102-degree fever for like almost 48 hours. Just the most painful sore throat I've ever experienced in my life. Agony. I woke up sobbing in the middle of the night. I couldn't remember a time that I cried from being sick. It was horrible. It was, and it hurt to cry. And I was like, oh my God, I just feel so frustrated. And anyway, it was really, really rough. And then when I finally started feeling better, I realized I didn't have any sense of taste or smell. So psychologically, that was a bit of a mind fuck. And anyway, I think we've turned a corner. But if you notice my voice sounds a little bit different, it's because of that. (laughs) God, yeah, I don't wish on anyone. It was rough. I'm so sorry. I checked in on you a few times during it and like the updates were grim. (laughs) It was really grim. It was really it hurt to like, I could barely get up the stairs. It hurt to shower. It was it sounds very dramatic. Um, We're we're okay now. So I'm grateful for that. But I'm I'm glad that you're on the mend. Yes, me too. But okay, tell me about your low. So my low is, as the bottom continues to fall out of my life, I have very few consulting hours these next few weeks. I probably need to find an additional consulting client. But because I'm going to France at the beginning of July, I don't want to start anything new before then. So I'm I'm a little stressed about my income. I'm not stressed about money overall, but I'm just, you know stressed about the dollars coming in. I'm trying to put a happy face on this. I'm trying to use it to push through a two-week sprint to finish this draft of my book. And I've just gotten to the ending, which again, as I said last week, I'm like not quite sure how that is. So I I just... Everything feels hard. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I get it. We were just talking about this. I, I totally can relate and understand. Hopefully it turns around soon. I hope so. Let's take an ad break. Okay. I feel like one of the themes of this podcast is my abject failure as a morning person. And I'm overall a really competent person. But for some reason, the idea of making myself breakfast is absolutely baffling to me. But this podcast has inadvertently solved my problem. I'm currently having a real love affair with Daily Harvest smoothies, specifically the strawberry peach one. Let's count the ways that I love Daily Harvest. First of all, tastes great. So easy to make when I'm half human in the morning. I just dump the cup in the blender and I add water, which I feel like might be a bit of a rogue choice here. I feel like other people add milk or some kind of alt milk. That's just doing me. And I love that it saves food waste. If I were ever confronted with the number of bags of spinach that I have thrown out because I told myself that I was going to make smoothies that week and then didn't, I would die of embarrassment. And I love that with Daily Harvest, I have the cups in my freezer if I want one and they're so easy to make. But then if I don't feel like a smoothie that day, they'll stay fresh until I do. See, for me, what I love about Daily Harvest is that it saves me from the very strong temptation of getting takeout. I've said a bunch of times that Jake and I are currently doing a no delivery challenge this year. As I just said, we are really trying to cut back on our expenses. So after a really long day, when the last thing I want to do is cook, it's honestly so clutch to have delicious, nutritious food in my freezer that takes almost no time and very little effort to cook. I could basically do it in my sleep. Daily Harvest Sweet Potato and Wild Hash Bowl is one option that I have absolutely fallen in love with recently. It's made with sweet potato, avocado, tomato, and many more really nutritious, delicious ingredients. And it really does feel like comfort food to me. And as an added bonus, it takes just minutes to heat up on the stove. Oh, you're really selling that one to me. I need to try that. I'm very much in smoothie mode. It's so good. So Daily Harvest offers delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, lattes, and more built on organic fruits and vegetables. I can't remember if I've ever talked about this, but a few years ago, I did a consulting project for Daily Harvest, and I was just so blown away by the attention they put into sourcing ingredients. And I'm probably not supposed to say this in an ad, 
want, but I don't think she'd care. But I know that Rachel, the founder, is maniacal about ingredient quality, which makes me just feel really good about what I'm putting in my body when I eat Daily Harvest versus other frozen foods that I'd be reaching for out of convenience. So take it from us. Daily Harvest has delicious options for any time of day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, and dessert. Jake is actually obsessed with their fig balls for a sweet afternoon pick-me-up, and I also love them. Avoid the takeout temptation and get Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com slash BOP to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash BOP for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash BOP. We are so excited to be talking today to Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, who is a psychologist, executive coach, organizational consultant, and speaker. She earned her doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University, and she recently gave a TEDx talk entitled The Imposter Syndrome Paradox. In her book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life, which she co-authored with her partner, Dr. Richard Orbe Austin, was released in April of 2020, and their second book on imposter syndrome will be released later this year. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Becca. I'm excited to be here. We could not be more excited. I was telling you before we got started that anytime we have a Q&A about any career topic, imposter syndrome is one of the most frequently asked questions. And, and you know, we can only speak from our own experiences. So I'm excited to have you here as an expert to talk about this. I'm excited to be here. And I think that's largely because about 70% of people experience it. So three out of four people are experiencing it. So it's a very common phenomenon. Oh, wow. Well, before we talk about imposter syndrome more broadly, I'm curious how this became your area of focus. Yeah, it became my area of focus because I lived it myself. So I had pretty profound imposter syndrome probably throughout my educational career. And it was probably at its height through my doctorate where I kind of always felt like I didn't belong and that I was a fraud. And actually the first day I was there, we, you know, when you go to a doctoral program, most doctoral programs are super small. And my class was like five people total. And I was sitting in a room with them and, you know, hearing about their experiences. One of them had like 20 years of experience in the field. And I was like, I don't belong here at all. And as I was walking out of the room, Uh, my mentor said, well, how do you feel on your first day? And I said, I feel like there's been a mistake made. Like I don't belong here. And he's like, we're about to find out. And (laughs) that made me terrified. (laughs) That made me feel like, well, he doesn't even know if I'm a fraud or not. So clearly I probably am. So I think, you know, as a result of that, I probably spent the next, you know, years in my doctoral program, trying to prove myself, trying to be a star, trying to be a standout, killing myself to the point of burnout as I was leaving the program, still feeling doubt about whether or not I deserved to be there, then kind of getting myself into jobs where, you know, I still was in that mindset right afterwards. And so it's something I've lived with and then, you know, decided after a really toxic experience that I was going to really deal with it head on. And that's when the interest really kind of like burgeoned for me. Just for people who are listening out there and might think, okay, is this feeling I'm experiencing imposter syndrome? Is it something else? What is like the simplest definition of imposter syndrome? Yeah. So it's when you are skilled, experienced, credentialed, have expertise, experience, but yet you haven't internalized that. And as a result of not internalizing it, you then fear that you're going to be revealed as a fraud if you make a mistake or an error or anything goes wrong. As a result of that fear of being revealed as a a fraud, then you either overwork or you self-sabotage to deal with that feeling, which can eventually lead to burnout, anxiety, depression, all kinds of sort of mental health conditions that are connected to it. I, I think like that second part of the definition is very enlightening because I think most people think, okay, like I feel like I don't belong here. And then they don't actually consider how that feeling might be affecting their work. So that's that was super helpful. Yeah, it does affect you profoundly. And I think the way that you think about it affects the behaviors that you engage in, the behaviors that you engage in, then exacerbate it. It sort of becomes what we call the imposter cycle. So you're mm-hmm. on this cycle and you just go over it over and over and over again. It doesn't change, it just stays static. I feel like I'm hearing more about imposter syndrome more frequently. Is it becoming more prevalent? Was there just an opening in conversation that we're talking about it more? Did it just get a name recently? <laughs> No, the concept is over 40 years old. It was initially coined in the late 1970s by two psychologists who were working in a college counseling center in Georgia. 
And they were working largely at the time with women. And they initially hypothesized that this was only occurring in women. But we know now know that that's not the case. And they were seeing these brilliant women who are grad students and professors and administrators. And they thought of them as really highly qualified, yet they were all wondering when they were going to all be found out. And so they together wrote this paper in 1978 that initially kind of postulated the theory and then started talking about what, what it looked like. And then for the, about the first 10 years or so, it's largely studied in women. Um, and then they sort of discovered it also occurs in men and likely in the same kinds of numbers as women, it just looks different. And then, you know, I think what's changed it, I think, is the amount of celebrities that have come out and said that they have imposter syndrome. Like when Michelle Obama said she struggled with imposter syndrome, that like broke open something massive, Viola Davis, Aquafina, all of these people have been talking about uh, you know, Tom Hanks, all these people have been talking about how they've lived with imposter syndrome their whole life. And I think that's really helped, I think, normalize the conversation because it's been around for a really long time. The concept it has been studied for, there's a lot of journal articles in academic spheres, which we often don't read in the, in the normal public, but it's been talked about for a long time. And you had asked about, is it getting more prevalent? There are no, what we call cohort effects. And so a cohort effect is like an effect generationally to be able to see differences. There are no cohort effects that have been found so far. This suggests it's growing. I think it's just growing in, in people's understanding. People are talking about it more often, disseminating information about it more often. You said that it presents differently in men and women. I'm curious about what those differences would look like because I would assume they'd be, I don't know, I, I'd ex- assume it was the same, but... Yeah. What are those differences? Yeah. So, you know, you hear a lot um, in social and popular media that women have this more than men or people of color have this more than than people who are from privileged groups. And that's not actually true. There's no research to suggest that. But what we do know is that for women, what we find in the research is that they tend to be more what we call counterphobic. So they actually face the thing that they fear. So as a result, they're triggered more often to be induced into the cycle of imposter syndrome more frequently. Where men, and then when, when we say women and men, meaning cisgender women and cisgender men, there hasn't been larger discussion about gender expression, which I hope there will be in the future. But for cisgender men, what they find is that they aim toward mastery. So they want to master the thing so they're never challenged or triggered. And as a result, they take less risks and, and, and also then also suppress their career in a lot of ways. Um, and so they're just being triggered less often. It doesn't mean that the imposter syndrome is occurring less internally within them. They're just trying to avoid it. Huh. That's fascinating. I've heard you mention twice the imposter cycle. So can you tell us what that cycle looks like? Yeah. So it's when you're triggered, you typically are not experiencing imposter syndrome at every moment of your life. You're typically then triggered. Typical triggers are like new job or new project, um, highly complicated project because there are many pieces where you can go wrong, um, highly visible opportunity, um, toxic leaders can induce you into imposter. So there are triggers that are occurring and those triggers then make you feel like, well, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not going to do a good job. And as a result of those thoughts, then you often engage in overwork or self-sabotage to manage those feelings, then you get a performance review. You do the thing, you get the performance review. Either it goes well and you just ignore it. You don't internalize any compliments. You just move on from the positive feedback or you get mixed feedback because we're usually high performers. So we get mixed feedback, which is not all bad. That we then hyper focus on the negative feedback, trying to overcorrect for anything negative that we did. So we never do that ever again. And then we get pulled into the cycle all over again. That sounds very familiar <laughs> to me. <laughs> Is imposter syndrome related to anxiety? Because for me, as someone who experiences anxiety, sometimes I find myself wondering, are these the same thing? Am I feeling nervous about this because I'm catastrophizing in my head because of my own predisposition to feel anxious? Uh, What's the connection there, if any? Yeah. Anxiety is highly correlated to imposter syndrome. And so it's correlated. We don't think, we don't know if there's causation. So we don't know if anxiety causes imposter syndrome or imposter syndrome is causing the anxiety. We don't know the direction of the causality, but we know that they're connected. And so they have a relationship. So it's very common when you have imposter syndrome to also have anxiety. So treating your anxiety can be very helpful to dealing with your imposter syndrome. However, you must also deal with the underlying components of your imposter syndrome because treating your anxiety alone will not also make the imposter syndrome go away because there are also mindset components that are related to the imposter syndrome that are not solely connected to the anxiety. Mm, Okay. Good to know. Good to know. So I want to talk about imposter syndrome in kind of two different scenarios that kind of maybe 
represent our our listener base. So the first one is early in your career where maybe you're in your first couple of jobs and you really do have a lot to learn, but you feel like you need to to cover that up. You feel like you need to know everything right away. I'm curious if you can talk to us a little bit about what are the drivers of imposter syndrome in that and, and how you, how you can think about combating it. So when you're early on in your career, yes, there's a lot of learning that has to be done. And I think oftentimes because perfectionism also underlies imposter syndrome. We tend to feel that when we arrive in these jobs as, as brand new employees, brand new to our field, that we have to like still be perfect, know it all, kind of be in a state that is completely unrealistic. And so as a result, we're more often facing these feelings. And so one of my like most, I, I hate this, this saying more than anything, but you hear it so much, fake it till you make it. I am a, such an anti-fake it till you make it person. Really? Um, because yes, I hate that saying. Because in <laughs> essence, it reinforces imposter syndrome. It tells you you are a fake. Keep faking it oh. until someday you make it. And what's interesting with imposter syndrome is that it doesn't go away unless you deal with it. So you will continue to feel like you're a fake even when you've made it. Oh and so gosh. what's critically important is that instead you you embrace what Carol Dweck calls the growth mindset. And learning that in the beginning of anything, you're going to fail a lot. You're going to not know a lot. And part of your job is to understand that as developmentally appropriate to learning and that that is normal and that we're not shooting for perfect. We're shooting for eager, learning, open, open to making mistakes, open to failing. And that that for somebody who has imposter syndrome is such an important skill to learn so that we can actually really tolerate the mistake making and not see it as we're flawed, we're stupid, we're incompetent, we're unable, we're just human and learning. And so I think for that first phase, that's so much what you've got to be focused on is like when you're in that early career state is like, I'm learning. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to ask people for help and to not know. That is a part of the developmental experience. Um, and so practicing that is really critical. And also if you're not making mistakes, then perhaps you're not taking risks or you're not learning like you should be in that environment. Exactly. Wow. I, I'm going to be thinking about the anti fake it till you make it thing for probably like <laughs> the next three weeks. That is really, really interesting. So then I also want to talk about later in your career where you are coming into a role being hired for your, your skills and your background or, you know, being tapped for a project because you've earned it, but you still feel these feelings of imposter syndrome. So what about there? What are the drivers there and, and what advice do you have to combat imposter syndrome when, when you are further along on the career ladder? I think it's such a good question because I think oftentimes people think, well, when I get the next step, when I get the next promotion, when I get the next opportunity, it's going to go away. And let me tell you something, it's going to trail you until you deal with it. And KPMG did a study in 2020 showing that 75% of female execs have dealt with imposter syndrome and are dealing with it. And that's a number larger than we have typically seen. And so it's sort of proof that the fact that it doesn't go away based on your seniority and that it's so important to deal with it. And I think one of the things that I hear most often about why it shows up at that particular moment is that you're more visible. There's more on the line. You feel like there's more at stake. There's more people that are kind of involved. You might have a team, you might have a family, you might have all these people. If something goes wrong, the consequences feel larger and bigger. And so I think that's really important to kind of recognize is that the trigger may shift, right? It may go from not knowing to now kind of like the, the visibility and now someone catching me in the one thing I might not know or the little, and I think it's also super important back to the stuff we were talking about in early careers, even in late career, we're still learning. We're still growing. Like the moment we stop, my, I had a supervisor that said this once, the moment you stop growing, you're dead. Really this idea that we are constantly learning and constantly not knowing, and that's okay. That's a part of learning and growing and developing. And that, to really be able to embrace that even in seniority. Let's take a quick ad break. So this is an ad, but I need to tell you a very true story that happened to me last week. So on Thursday night, I was going to a party. It was tropical themed. And I hadn't worn the dress that I wanted to wear in a while. And I didn't try it on. Then the night of the party, when I put it on, it was clear that the last time I wore it, my body looked a little different. So usually that would be the moment that I had like a complete woe is me meltdown about my body. But instead, I grabbed my Honey Love Superpower Briefs. And 
oh my God, they completely transformed the way the dress fit me. And I went from feeling really bad about myself to just an instant confidence boost. Look, I am a firm believer in the fact that no one needs shapewear to feel good in their body, but I am also someone who personally likes to wear shapewear sometimes. And I know I'm not alone there. This is exactly why finding shapewear that feels like it's working with my body rather than against it has become so important to me. Honey Love is shapewear that you actually want to wear. I've had a previously kind of complicated relationship with shapewear, so now I only opt for options that make me feel good in my body. And I have to say I was so impressed by Honey Love's construction. Their shapewear has a signature X that helps the body feel supported and smooth under clothing but somehow it does so without any of the downsides I experienced with other brands. It's comfortable, it doesn't roll down, and most importantly, it's something that I don't dread putting on my body when I'm getting ready for a night out or another special occasion. This shapewear is legit. It has boning in it, which I feel like really holds me in, but also means that it never rolls down. Because there's no point in wearing shapewear if then you're like picking at it all night when you're at a fancy event because it's uncomfortable or it's like not staying in place. So people love Honey Love. We're two of them. But they've also been featured in the New York Times, on Good Morning America, in Brides Magazine, and have thousands of five-star reviews. Plus, there's no risk. They cover shipping and returns. So if you have an event coming up this summer that you want to audition Honey Love for, go for it. And if it helps, I found that their shapewear runs true to size for me. See for yourself at honeylove.com and get 20% off a second item. Plus, when you use code BOP, you'll get an additional 10% off your entire order. Get 20% off your second item plus an additional 10% off at honeylove.com with code BOP. Honeylove.com, code BOP. Rules and restrictions may apply. So you talked about, you know, you're going to be stuck with this until you deal with it. So how how do we think about dealing with it? Yeah, so I think when when we talk about dealing with it, we talk about like three phases of dealing with it. The first phase is really understanding, like clarifying where are the origins? How did this come to be? How do we understand how it got there? What does it look like for me? And everyone sort of looks a little differently. And so what does it look like for me? And sort of clarifying that. And I think the second phase is really understanding what kind of behaviors am I going to start choosing instead of the, the behaviors that actually reinforce my, my imposter and what behaviors are healthier for me to choose instead when I'm caught in that cycle. And the third phase is really about creating a different way of showing up in the world, which is much more robust and full and not in these narrow, rigid roles, and also creating community around us that can support us. Because oftentimes when we have imposter syndrome, we're really good at being like individual contributors, lone wolves. We like we want to do things on our own because we don't want anyone to find out like how incompetent we truly are. But really learning how to build community in a place where you can be really vulnerable and get the support you need around you. So, you know, one of the things that I think oftentimes people misunderstand about imposter syndrome is that you've gotten here for a reason. There's a reason why you have imposter syndrome and largely it's because of your child, the childhood roles you were put in and your family dynamics. Like social media didn't do this. One particular boss didn't do this in your current life. It happened early on. And because it happened early on, some of the ways of behaviors are pretty calcified, pretty intense, pretty powerful. And so changing it requires recognizing what those early experiences are and how they show up and are mirrored in our, our current day experiences. For example, one of the common reasons why people have had imposter syndrome is because they grew up in, in a family in which they were they were said as the intelligent one. And so, you know, they might have been the one in, which was considered smart. And as a result of being smart, they were thought everything must come easy. And if things don't come easy, it's proof for you is proof. I'm not as smart as everyone here thinks I am. So for you, this, even the overworking is a trigger for you in your current life to remind, I have to work so much harder to do this X, Y, and Z. And so even the behavior of the cycle reinforces this idea that you are not good enough. And so really understanding these early experiences is super helpful. It often is like demystifying when people read the first chapter of my book, they're like, oh my God, you just read my life out. <laughs> and it's because we know the patterning that exists in early childhood that leads to this. And I think it's people fear it, but I think it's very freeing because people are like, oh my God, it's not a mystery why I'm feeling this. Because oftentimes people are like, why do I think these things? 
and it got crafted and that's, and you can uncraft it. And I think that's the powerful, for me, that's the powerful thing about it. Do you think that you can kind of discover these childhood things on your own? I mean, personally, I love my therapist. I'm a big believer in therapy and what you were just saying about that feeling of like, oh, this makes complete sense, but never would have occurred to me before. It is, it's like a relief. It feels like a, I don't know, a a relief almost. But do you think that therapy is necessary to deal with burnout? Do you think it's helpful? I don't know. Is different person? I mean, I'm a psychologist, so I I think therapy (laughs) is very helpful. I love therapy. Um, And I, but I don't think it, in order to overcome imposter syndrome, you don't have to go to therapy. I know that for a fact, because the book is about the nine steps that it takes in the research to kind of overcome imposter syndrome. And we have been collecting data on it probably for the last two years. And we have seen that with doing the book and completing it and completing the nine steps, that we see a 30% decrease in imposter syndrome over the completion of the, of the work. So a 30% decrease takes someone from frequent to moderate like experiences of it, which is massive because sometimes people have never not experienced it in their day-to-day life. So yes, you can totally do the work without having to see a therapist. If you feel like there's additional layers and you do want to do additional work, see the therapist. You can do both. You know, you can work the book and see a therapist. Many people do. And it's, it's, it makes it even more powerful, you know? That's amazing, that percentage difference. So very cool. Yeah, that's incredible. I want to dive in a little bit more to the second bucket you said. So the first step is kind of identifying the why this exists. And then the second is replacing those behaviors. What are some examples of, you know, previous imposter syndrome behaviors and kind of what <laughs> behaviors you're, you might want to replace them with? One of the things we talk about in that particular phase is the thoughts that are elicited from the triggers. So for example, you make a mistake and the thought is, what is wrong with me? I'm so stupid. That's what we call an automatic negative thought. It's a labeling automatic negative thought where you're sort of labeling yourself as a result of a behavior. That label then makes you behave as if you are stupid. And then you engage in behaviors to try to recover, you know, and try to not let anyone see you're stupid. And so what we talk about in the book, one of the particular steps is really learning how to identify the automatic negative thoughts, label them, externalize them, sort of see them as outside of you. That just because this is my, my favorite quote by Amit Ray is, um, you are not your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts. Really learning how to observe your thinking and not necessarily see it as a part of who you are. And then being like, is that thought helpful? What thought, what behavior is that thought creating? What other thoughts might be useful? Is that reality-based? Is that really based on what happened? Am I really stupid because I made that mistake? And really challenging the thoughts and coming up with a rational responding. So I make a mistake. And instead of saying, I'm stupid, I say, I made a mistake. I'm human. I make mistakes. Can I learn from this mistake? Can I make it better the next time? Absolutely. Am I going to punish myself? No. How is that useful to me in trying to overcome this? Instead, I'm just going to learn from this opportunity to grow and I'm going to, I'm going to respond in a very different way. I'm not going to overwork to prove that I'm not stupid. I'm actually just going to finish my work in a managed way. And so it, it is really about sort of really challenging that, that thought system that has kind of kept us entrenched in this and then allowing ourselves to have different responses to the triggers that are not these thoughts that are punishing us and making us feel like we're not good enough and having to do these behaviors. And so that's one of the, the, one of the behaviors. Another one is that when we have imposter syndrome, we're super bad at self-care. We're like the worst. And we often put self-care like at the end of everything. Like if I have a 10 seconds, then I'll do some meditation. But we put our prioritize ourselves last. And one of the new behaviors that we ask you to pick up is learning how to prioritize your self-care and really proactively creating it as foundational into your schedule, into your process, um, and really having a holistic understanding of your self-care. So it's not just like, you know, manicures. It's like really thinking about how does that self-care replenish you, rejuvenate you? How does that self-care fill your, your physical self, your mental self, your um, reflective self? How does it fill these different parts of yourself and make sure that you don't necessarily live in a burnout, like a chronic burnout state? And so those are some of them. That was so helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think that self-compassion, and we talk about this in the new book, about like self-compassion being a really important skill to build. Like oftentimes we felt like, when we had imposter syndrome, when we had imposter syndrome, we feel like self-compassion is letting ourselves off the hook, being easy on ourselves and not, not motivating ourselves. But it actually is going to motivate you more when you can have empathy for yourself and kindness for yourself. 
very few people are, are motivated positively by harshness, that they're more motivated by holding and gentleness. Um, it's not, I've never seen clients that I work with become demotivated and less amazing because they're kind to themselves. <laughs> Although that's what we often fear. Yeah. And I feel like society sometimes kind of says that too. And on social media, there's this sense of, you know, like <laughs> use your failures as like a way to motivate you, which I guess they can, but it often I feel like is from a harsh like very hard yeah. perspective instead of like the more gentle approach. But how do you think that social media actually affects imposter syndrome as a whole? Yeah. I mean, I think social, oftentimes people say it causes it. It does not cause imposter syndrome. It might trigger mm -hmm. you for, mm -hmm. for an experience of imposter syndrome, but it doesn't cause it because, you know, the way social is set up, we often have that underlying perfectionism. So we see people like doing it, living it, whatever. And we're like, oh, I see. I'm not bad. I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. This is what, you know, so I think it does trigger us in that way of feeling like not good enough or not enough, or this is, you know, why I can't. And because I don't have it as perfectly together as they do or whatever, we're often not seeing their mistakes, their flaws, that you we know, were seeing things through filters and through planned social media content that we don't think is planned. We think they're just popping it off, but it's been planned for weeks. You know, like we don't understand the inner workings of what's going on behind. And then we don't see the struggle. And I think that we then think that perfect polished picture is how it's supposed to be. And when our perfect polished picture doesn't match up, we're like, this is why I'm inadequate. You can see how I am inadequate. It becomes like an evidence. And there was one other thing too, like when you have imposter syndrome, you tend to overvalue others and undervalue yourself. So social gives you the per perfect opportunity to overvalue others and undervalue yourself. And so it reinforces that particular notion. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yes, that also very much rings true for me. Let's take an ad break. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you ever become friends with me or even just acquaintances with me, one thing you should know right away is that I will absolutely talk to you about therapy a lot. My experience with seeing a therapist on a weekly basis has been so utterly life-changing that I feel the urge to tell anyone and everyone who will listen all about it. I really do believe that everyone deserves to give themselves the gift of therapy and that it changes how you move through life for the better. But I also totally get that it can be difficult to prioritize yourself. BetterHelp Online Therapy makes that so much easier, though. So BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Therapy can seem really intimidating, but think of it as a recurring opportunity to ignore work, ignore your phone, ignore social obligations for an hour, and simply spend a little time with yourself. You might be surprised just how much therapy can help you with day-to-day -day stressors like burnout. For me, therapy has not only helped with burnout and general life stress, but it's also helped me develop a much-needed sense of self-compassion. I'm still working on it personally, but talking to my therapist about my natural tendency to bully myself, for lack of a better word, instead of being kind to myself, really woke me up in a major way. Now, I try to give myself a little more grace in my day-to-day -day life, and it's honestly made me a much happier and more content person. No matter what you're hoping to work on, though, BetterHelp has therapists that specialize in dozens of different areas. If you're ready to prioritize yourself by working with a therapist, we have great news. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash badonpaper. And so up to this point, we've, we've talked a lot about kind of internal factors of kind of creating and perpetuating imposter syndrome. But I want to talk about environmental factors and I want to talk about toxic workplaces. So, you know, let's say you work somewhere that is reinforcing your imposter syndrome or you have a boss that is reinforcing it and, you know, you, you can't leave for whatever reason. Like, how do you deal in that workplace? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is so incredibly important is emotional boundaries. And so, and then that's like a, a, a word people have a hard time understanding, like a physical boundary. I get it. I close the door, you go away. And emotional boundaries kind of somewhat similar. It's this idea of like that while someone may be doing something toxic and awful, there are options that you have about how you take that in. 
And so one of the, one of the things that I think becomes really important when you have imposter syndrome is learning to separate yourself from that person and from their feedback. If they're particularly toxic, their feedback is largely probably not helpful. It is probably not accurate. It's probably not helpful, even though they may be saying in a very authorized way, and they may be an authority to you because they may be your boss. You have to begin to recognize what is real and what is not real. And even if they're saying it as if it's real or telling other people it has consequences for you, you can still know it to not be real. You know, I've had many clients who have bosses who are horrifically toxic. And even though they are stellar and doing so well, the boss is like, that's a fail and you're awful and you screwed up this little tiny thing. And meanwhile, they're completely successful, but the messaging they're hearing is all the things that are going wrong. An emotional boundary is being like, that's on you. Like that belongs to you. And that doesn't belong to me. And I can take the fact that I am actually doing a good job. And yes, while I may be also messing up and I'm trying to learn from those things, that also is normal and developmental. And so one of the tricks someone once told me about sort of like managing sort of energy and emotional boundaries was they were, they were like, imagine you know, some kind of, of shield uh, up, up against you when you're trying to create an emotional boundary. One of my clients would say like the shield is, is metal and it sounds like they can hear it going up when they do it. Some of my clients' shields are white light, but they have a shield that belongs to them. And then when they're dealing with that person, they make sure to put the shield up. And this particular imaginal exercise takes practice. You have to put the shield up when you're not dealing with the person up many times so you can imagine it. So then when the person comes up, it's easier to imagine the shield. And so the idea is that you're creating a boundary between you and that person. And while they may be saying things and you may be hearing them, you're not absorbing them and not identifying with them as a result of that. So when you're in those kinds of situations, techniques and skills like that are really very critical because the toxic boss is going gonna, is gonna to remain toxic. And I think it's also important when you have imposter syndrome, to recognize there's nothing you can do that's going to make them untoxic. Like you're not going to be able to outperform, outstar, you know, out, out, you know, kind of please them. They're always going to be toxic. And maybe you please them for a second, then they're going to be toxic again soon. And so I think it's really important to kind of take responsibility out of changing them and really work on the skills you can work on to protect yourself. I would also say get in therapy, have good boundaries around the way that you're managing work, don't overwork. So a bunch of different things, but they're all about, you know, the parts that you can control. Wow. That's such a mindset shift because I know my inclination in that would be to try to change their mind or to to fight against it rather than to just shield myself from it or to separate from it. So yeah. I, I think that will be really meaningful for a lot of people because I, I know I've never thought of it that way. Same. I'm definitely going to go back and think about this <laughs> many times. I'm loving this conversation, by the way. What if on the flip side, you are a boss? What can you do to foster a positive environment for your team and your employees? Yeah, it's my favorite word. One of my favorite words, psychological safety, and really trying to create psychologically safe environments in which everyone feels like they can show up as their full selves. And that they can even give feedback, criticism, dissent, and be safe. That is a critical piece that you can take feedback without personalizing it or, or feeling like you need to engage in retribution, right? I think one of the things that's also really important to recognize is that when you have imposter syndrome, the possibility of you yourself becoming a toxic boss is pretty high. And the reason why is because you can be so insecure about your own performance that the way that you manage a team can exude that accidentally, that toxicity. For example, some of the common ways it shows up is micromanaging your team because you're worried about the way that they perform and how it might reflect on you. Demonstrating overworking or modeling overworking to them. Even if you're telling them don't overwork, but you're overworking, you're telling them how to succeed is to overwork. You know, being very critical of mistakes and not really understanding them as part of like the growth and development process. So really being, you know, kind of not necessarily asking for help yourself, like these things can model toxicity accidentally. So dealing with your own imposter can really help you be a better boss and a better manager of people. Um, it's really critically important. I imagine also if you have children, it could work the same way, like projecting that, which I would have never, ever considered. I don't have kids, but, but just thinking about it. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we, we talked about that early childhood and, you know, parental dynamics can really be what's at this in motion. 
And accidentally, you can replicate those parental dynamics because they're the ones that you know, they're the ones that you're familiar with. And so really challenging those dynamics, for example, that achievement is the only way that people get noticed in the family or not being able to manage conflict well um, in the family. That's very common for imposter syndrome dynamics. So all of those things can really contribute to the way that you parent or you raise your kids. And so it's really important that you're examining those factors and how they're accidentally replicating and creating it potentially like in some ways inculcating it in the next generation, which that's my main goal is to, to in essence, to eradicate imposter syndrome because it can be eradicated. It's behavioral. We can change it. We just have to want to, because it's not easy. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Imposter syndrome sometimes reminds me of anxiety in the sense that I feel like people, at least in my personal experience, I feel like sometimes that thought of like, oh, I'm a fraud somehow is protecting me. Like, oh, if I'm imagining the worst possible version of how I'm performing, then I already know the worst outcome. You know, some not someone's not going to come to me and say, surprise, you're terrible. Cause you know, I've already thought it, I've already <laughs> done it. I've already gone through all the ways I suck. Thank you very much but it doesn't help you, <laughs> but it, your brain can make you feel like it will sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really fantastic point because I think that we often cling to the imposter syndrome and we say, it's made us successful without it. I wouldn't have what I have. It's not true. You have what you have because you are smart, intelligent, capable, have expertise, have invested in your education, have invested in your experience. That's why you're successful. The imposter syndrome is actually taking the joy out of it. It is taking your feelings of, of competency out of it. It's taking your ability to really internalize what you have done. And that idea of pre-worrying something or like you're going to give some pre-anxiety to something that's going to fix it. No, it just makes the anxiety so much longer. You have to deal with it so much longer because when the person tells you you suck, it's still going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. It's just going to yeah. hurt longer. <laughs> it is. It really is. Oh gosh. Yes. So true. So what about you? So now as you're, uh, you, you've become an expert on imposter syndrome, do you still ever deal with feelings of imposter syndrome and has your approach to how you deal with it in your own life changed? I mean, yes, it's changed dramatically. And I think, you know, yes, I get triggered. I think people ask, will it ever go away completely? Mm -hmm. I don't know if go away is the answer is like, can you, can you sort of have it so insignificant that it's not impacting your behavior? Yes. Do I get triggered? Absolutely. Especially when I do something new or I do something that feels very high stakes or, you know, I do get triggered, but I definitely now know what skills to use to deal with the trigger as opposed to what I used to do. What I used to do is over-function. For example, like one of the things that used to trigger me really intensely was public speaking. And it doesn't trigger me as much anymore. I do a lot of it. I do a lot more of it. That's been incredibly helpful. But one of the things that I used to do to compensate for that fear was like overwork on the preparation of that talk. Like I would sketch out every single point. I would have like a hundred slides for 20 minutes. Like I would make sure that there no point was uncovered. But what it did was create so much anxiety in me that I was more likely to screw up giving that talk than I would if I had just done a baseline level of, of preparation. And so now I just do a baseline level of preparation. I trust that I have enough experience or knowledge that if something gets asked, I'll answer it. And if I don't know it, I'll say I don't know it. You know, and I think that I'm much more comfortable not knowing uh, now than I ever have been. And, you know, I'm not afraid of my imposter when I get triggered because I know what to do with it when it shows up. And I've created a, an environment around me where I, I have a lot of safety nets to deal with it. And so it's very different now. I think the person I am today, I wouldn't have imagined I could have been, you know, 15 years ago when all that awful stuff was going on for me. I couldn't have imagined her because I, I don't think I believed I could do this. It wasn't until I let go of the imposter syndrome that I saw that what I was capable of. And my husband has this saying, which he said to me like a gajillion times when I was struggling with trying to leave this toxic boss. And he said, when you work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And what I realized is that energy that I was putting into other people to make them like me, to make them think I was good enough, I just put into myself and I did what I wanted to do with my life. And I see that when people go through the work with me or they work with me in, in my courses or different things, I see the change and I see them take that, that level of power that they've been investing and in trying to prove themselves and they put it toward themselves and all kinds of amazing things are possible. And such. So I see them like ask for like, 
you know, raises or, or that they would never imagine, quit their jobs and, and get jobs that, that they, in, in organizations they dreamed of. It just allows you to feel empowered enough and sense of agency that you never thought you could, you could have. This has been so inspiring. <laughs> I have seriously loved every single thing you've said. And it all is reminds me of something I, I've personally been thinking about a lot this year, which is like the value of trusting yourself is so much more than I ever could have thought working on it. But everything you said is like, I'm going to remember on this, you know, journey I'm on personally, but yeah. Wow. So inspiring. Seriously. So thank, thank you. you. For- I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, I think the, the road that we go on to trust ourselves and develop a new type of relationship with ourselves where we can actually really value and appreciate and love and let other people love us and other people appreciate us is such a valuable road to be on. You know, like I think it's, it's not going to disappoint you on the other side. Yeah. This has truly been so transformational. I want to hear from you where, well, first of all, maybe you can give us the pitch for your book. And then I I want you to tell people where they can find you on the internet. And then I know you also work with clients and I don't know if you're open for clients, but tell people about that too. Sure. So I have a book, the book is Own Your Greatness, Overcome Posture and Beat Self Down and Succeed in Life. That one's the one that's currently out. That one is the one where you actually um, do the work. It's a workbook. So you actually do the work to overcome your imposter. One we're seeing really great results with. I will warn you, it is hard. It is no joke. And it just requires you to just care for yourself and to really be interested in changing this. But I think it's, it's an important road to be on. So that's the first book. The second book is Your Unstoppable Greatness. And in essence, it's the next level. So it really deals with like, once you've dealt with your imposter syndrome, like, what do you dream for yourself? What do you imagine? Like rethinking those dreams for yourself and then learning to think about, you know, how this shows up in organizations and managers and leadership and culture and really thinking about, because oftentimes, even if we build our own thing, we have to build a system around it. So thinking about the systemic issues in this, in the second book, and that comes out in October. And then I have a course coming out for the first time, which is a companion to the book. It will probably be coming out this summer. It's like a companion. It's a four-month course where you can actually go through the book and we come on and and do lives and support you through that process. We also have a masterclass that's more like hands-on where we are actually with you through 14 weeks of going through that book. We meet with you like an hourly basis um, as a small group. And so that's another one. And then there's some other fun things that are coming out. I'm probably more engaged in, in Instagram and LinkedIn. My handle's Dr. Orbe Austin. And LinkedIn, I actually just got named um, top LinkedIn voice in mental health a couple of days ago. Oh my goodness. Congrats. Congratulations. I see why after talking to you for an hour, I completely understand. LinkedIn is correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm there too, pretty, pretty publicly. Um, and I think that's, that, that covers it, I think. <laughs> Well, I'm very excited to keep up with you in all of those places. And I'm very excited to get the book. Awesome. Me too. Let's talk about obsessions. I'm very excited to hear about your obsession. So my obsession is seconding your obsession from a couple of weeks ago with the Bowdoin smocked bodice midi dress. So this is the... Isn't it so great? So great. This is the dress that Olivia said she wore and got like compliments left and right from like the male person, like a police officer. Like it feels like being in a a TV show, you know? Like who's (laughs) that lady? Who's that lady? Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I'm singing. I'll stop. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. So I got it in yellow. I think we might have the same one. I've only seen your blue one. Um, And then I also ordered it in black because I think that the black is back ordered. But I think it could be like a really great basic just for summer nights with a pair of cute sandals. Oh, yeah. With some cool jewelry. I saw that one and I thought it was a great, great choice. I also have the yellow. It looked great on you. I saw it on Instagram in my COVID stupor. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you're happy with it. Oh, my God. So happy. It's just I know like the the word flattering is kind of like a bad word sometimes. And like, I don't know how else to describe it, though. I just felt really great. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing about it. I feel like it also just has a really great like movement to it. Like the way it kind of like sways in the wind. Anyway. And it has pockets. We'll talk about it forever, obviously. It does have pockets. Huh. <laughs> Need we say more? What about you? <sighs> My obsession is far less exciting, but I need to give a shout out to the Vicks Cool Severe Cough Drops. 
which were the only thing that helped my throat feel like I wasn't actively swallowing razor blades and brought me so much relief. I could have actually cried. Anyway, if you deal with COVID and you have that really painful sore throat, go to your local convenience store and get these and thank me later. It will change your life. That's all. Strong endorsement. (laughs) What about... And I think this is the last time I will talk about Vicks on this podcast, but you don't know. You don't know. (laughs) We'll see. We don't know. (laughs) What about reading? Were you reading while you have COVID or were you watching TV? Were you just laying there? No, I, I honestly, I thought multiple times how I was amazed that people say they can read when they're sick. I... I couldn't do anything. I had actually saved the show Starstruck for when I, I I thought, you know, eventually two and a half years in, I will get COVID at some point. So I've been saving Starstruck, but I could barely even like absorb anything that was happening. So I'll have to watch it again. But anyway, I have been reading, but not during COVID. I finished a couple nights ago, Love and Other Words. Really cute, fun. I, I liked it a lot. It makes me want to read every summer after. And then I started uh, Night Swim. It's a thriller by Megan Golden. So we'll see how that goes. I'm in the beginning stages. But what about you? So I'm reading two books at once because I've had to start reading a book on my Kindle. So I bought Legendborn by Tracy Dion. And this was a book that Phoebe Wright recommended when she was on the podcast for our summer reading episode. And I bought this book. Olivia, I have never seen smaller text in a book. Oh, what? did you post about yes. this? I think yes. I saw. <laughs> and I, I can confirm it was it's very small. So text. small. Like I was like, is this seven point font? Like it's it's a <laughs> YA book, and I guess it's really catering to those like nubile young eyes that like <laughs> can can read really small font. I couldn't Is that how eyesight works? Yes, I think so. I think that's exactly how it works. And so uh, I really wanted to read the book. I read like 50 pages in this small font, and I was like, I can't do this. So I bought a second copy on my Kindle. And I've been reading it on my Kindle at an adjustable font size that I can actually read. I prefer reading a paper book because I feel like it gives me separation between work and non-work. And so I can read it in the morning or if I've had a few hours between work, but I don't want to like end my day and like immediately dive into another screen. I got that. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm like halfway through. It is a young adult fantasy book that's a retelling of King Arthur's Round Table. There's witchcraft. There's a lot of race relations. I think there's a love triangle. There's at least a love line. I don't know if there's a triangle yet. Very much enjoying it. Phoebe, when she was on the podcast, compared it to Ninth House, which I can definitely see. So reading that. And then um, I'm also reading my paper book right now as I'm reading The Reunion by Megan Quinn, which was recommended to me by a friend of mine. I've never read one of her books, but she's one of those like deeply prolific authors that has written like 30. So I'm very like, oh, wow. I hope I love it because I love discovering an author that has like a huge back catalog. So this is, I think this book came out earlier this year. It's about three grown children who go home to their hometown, which is like an island off the coast of Washington for their parents' 50th anniversary. And I'm only like 50 pages in, but I think there's going to be like all sorts of drama between the family. And then also, I think they all have a love story. So I know the daughter runs into like her old flame. I'm not quite sure what it is for the other two. It sounds intriguing. Yeah. And it's like a six POV. So it feels kind of like an Ellen Hildebrand, different tone the writing tone is different, but it feels like an Ellen Hill brand where it's like the story told from like multiple POVs. Awesome. I'll keep you updated. Both sound very good. Please do. And if none of those books appeal to you, we have our June book club coming up in two weeks and we're reading Cover Story by Susan Rigetti, which is kind of like this ultimate scammer novel about a college intern who gets sucked into the vortex of this scammer who's kind of a combination of Anna Delvey and Elizabeth Holmes and Caroline Calloway and what happens. So honestly, like if you watched any of those scammer shows, like if you watched Inventing Anna or if you watched, what was the Elizabeth Holmes one called? The Dropout. The Dropout. If you watch The Dropout, like I think you're going to, I think you're going to be into this book. And if you're like, no, no, I'm over scammer things. I've, I've had enough. Like I will tell you this book's ending. <laughs> 
punched me in the face. It turns everything on its head. Punched me in the face. Yeah. And so I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think so too. I think I think you'll like it. And we're going to keep playing listener voicemails on our book club episode. So uh, we'll put the voicemail number in the show notes. And if you have a question for us, if you have thoughts you want to share on this book, please, please, please leave us a voicemail. You can also record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at thatonpaperpodcast at gmail.com. And you may be included in our episode. Yes. I absolutely love listening to the voicemails. So please send them all in. I think it adds a lot of fun to the to the book club. It does. And I'm always just like surprised by people's different point of views and takes. And Same. It's, it's just a delight. Same. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.